So good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and on behalf of my colleague, Michael Ryan, our uh, vice president and library director, I want to say that it is a great thrill to see all of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium tonight. This evening, we have a special presentation featuring the winner of this year's Gilder Lerman Prize for Military History at the New York Historical Society in conversation with our own distinguished Lerman Fellow at New York Historical, Andrew Roberts. I, uh, before I go any further, I want to recognize the members of the prize jury who are with us this evening, our great friend Josiah Bunting, Flora Fraser, and Charles Brower. And I want to thank them for their great work on behalf of this prize. We are, of course, pleased indeed to announce Peter Cousins, author of The Earth is Weeping, the epic story of the Indian Wars for the American West, as the 2016 prize winner. Congratulations. The Gilder Lehrman Prize for Military History at the New York Historical Society is jointly administered by the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History and the New York Historical Society. The $50,000 prize is bestowed annually in recognition of the best book in the field of military history published in English during the previous calendar year. The award seeks to engage the public in and inspire public discourse around wartime studies, international relations, and diplomacy. We are absolutely thrilled to be partnering with the Gilder Lerman Institute of American History on this prize. It is thanks to the leadership of Lewis E. Lerman, co-chairman of the Board of Trustees at the Gilder Lerman Institute and a distinguished New York historical trustee that our two institutions have joined forces around this award. I'd also like to thank and recognize our great friend, Dr. James Basker, president of the Gilder Lehrman Institute and a member as well of New York Historical's Board of Trustees. We are grateful indeed for the superb work that both Mr. Lehrman and Dr. Basker do and have done on behalf of our institutions. So thanks so very much to both of you. I would like to extend a special welcome to the wonderful teachers and students in the audience today, guests of our friends at the Gilder Lehrman Institute of American History. Welcome to all of you. And I would also like to recognize and thank the great chair of the Board of Trustees of New York Historical, Pam Schaffler, who is with us this evening. And thank Pam for all she does on behalf of New York Historical and also our longstanding trustee, Mr. Glenn Louie. Thank you also, Glenn, for all you do on behalf of New York Historical. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. The Q&A will be conducted via note cards, written note cards. You should have received a note card in pencil as you are entering the auditorium this evening, but my colleagues are going up and down the aisles offering note cards and pencils. Should you wish to write a question, they'll return later on in the program. Uh, 
if you don't have a note card at that point, and also to collect the note cards with the questions. Um, there will be a formal book signing following the program and copies of Peter Cousins' award-winning book, in addition to copies of all the Gilder Lehrman Prize for Military History finalist book, will be available for sale in our New York History store. We are thrilled to welcome Peter Cousins to the New York Historical Society. The author or editor of 16 acclaimed books on the American Civil War and the Indian Wars of the American West, Mr. Cousins served for 30 years as a Foreign Service Officer, U.S. Department of State, where he received the American Foreign Service Association's highest award for exemplary courage, integrity, and creative dissent. In addition to receiving the Gilder Lerman Prize for Military History, Mr. Cousins' newest book, The Earth is Weeping, was chosen as one of the top 10 history books of 2016 by Smithsonian Magazine. He's currently working on a biography of Shawnee Chief Tecumseh. Our moderator this evening, as I've said, is Andrew Roberts, chair of the 2016 Judging Committee for the Gilder Lehrman Prize for Military History at the New York Historical Society. Uh, Andrew Roberts is the Distinguished Lehrman Fellow here at New York Historical Society, and he is currently visiting professor in the War Studies Department at King's College London. He's the author or editor of 19 books, the recipient of many prestigious awards, including the William Penn Prize in 2012, the Los Angeles Times Biography Prize in 2015, and the Bradley Prize in 2016. In 2007, he delivered the prestigious White House Lecture. He's currently working on a biography of Winston Churchill. As always, before we begin, I'd like to ask that you please just make sure that anything that makes a noise, like a cell phone, is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Um, this is a very remarkable book. It is the result of four years of work by uh, Peter Cousins, uh, during which time he went to 19 archives in 11 states and visited 48 battlefields. Uh, this is something that the, uh, that the judges, three of them, uh, here tonight, uh, agreed unanimously was the best military book of, uh, of last year. Many congratulations, Peter. Um, the wars of uh, the United States against the Indians uh, were longer than the Vietnam War and the Afghanistan War and probably any war that Steve Bannon might be thinking of. <laughs> um, and it is really, uh, it's really important, I think, to, um, to talk to the man who understands these wars uh, so extraordinarily well. The reason that this is such a remarkable book is not only that it's so well researched and he's gone to so many archives, but also because it is beautifully written. This is one of the things that all of the um, the, the judges agreed. Um, uh, charming, intelligent, uh, witty. Uh, there are even some quite 
good jokes, which by and large, this is not a subject. I think you'll agree that is going to be right to, to humor, but nonetheless, uh, there are, there's, a, there's a good deal of irony, of course, as one can imagine. Um, so to start off, would you like to just uh, give us a, an overview about uh, U.S.-Indian relations at the time of the end of the American Civil War? At the end of the American Civil War, as you can imagine, the, the attention of the Lincoln administration was focused almost entirely on winning the Civil War. Uh, relations with the American Indians or the West, let's just say Indian policy, was uh, in complete disarray. As General William T. Sherman famously said, um, it was in such disarray that it left matters to caprice and the hazard. Um, so there was, there was no overarching policy at the end of the Civil War. But, uh, that was left uh, to President Grant four years later, 1869, when he came into office. He famously said, let us have peace, speaking of the Indians. However, that was a conditional statement. Let us have peace with the Indians. Uh, on the understanding that the Indians would surrender their way of life and their cultural heritage and go happily to reservations to be, with air quotes, civilized and Christianized. And uh, if they were to do that, then peace would reign. If they didn't, well, then they would be turned over to the military for appropriate action. And surprisingly, one of the things that's very surprising, there are many things that are surprising in this book, but one of the things that's surprising is quite how bad the US Army was uh, at, um, uh, in military affairs at this time, despite having only fought only two years or so earlier the, um, the American Civil War, in which they were, the Federal Army, of course, were fighting a tremendously impressive force in the Confederacy. Um, yet within only two years, they were down to 25,000 uh, troops, uh, which is in itself quite extraordinary. And they also, as you say in um, your book on page 54, um, declining numbers were not the army's only problem. Gone were the sober and purposeful volunteers who had restored the Union. In their place was a decidedly inferior brand of soldier. Not all were bummers and loafers, as the New York Sun alleged. Um, there were also a disproportionately large number of urban poor criminals, drunkens, and perverts. Um, <laughs> A, uh, one of the many uh, great lines in this uh, in this book. Um, why was that? What was it about um, fighting, especially fighting in Indian country, that um, led to having such substandard uh, troops and also officers, as you point out? Well, at the end of the Civil War, um, of course, the Civil War was fought largely by volunteers, and at the end of the war, the volunteers mustered out as quickly as they could, and uh, Congress looking to be parsimonious, it's nothing new with Congress, uh, as Andrew said, dramatically reduced the size of the army. Uh, and so that the, the opportunities for, for officers, for advancement were almost non-existent. If you were a new lieutenant, for instance, coming out of West Point, you could expect to uh, serve nearly 30 years before you reached major. So the opportunities for officers were, were minimal. Uh, enlisted men, uh, generally came out west uh, for better opportunities. They would come out west and uh, almost immediately the la a large number would desert to go to the gold mining fields to, to seek uh, higher paying jobs in the west. And um, the, the uh, 
most, most of the time, the soldiers spent doing almost anything but soldiering. They spent their time building forts, uh, doing routine, boring fatigue duties. And uh, it was a, the posts were, were substandard. In fact, General Sherman, on his first tour of, of the West, uh, speaking of one post, he said, you know, if, if uh, slave owners had um, kept their slaves in quarters as poor, it would have been evidence of their absolute inhumanity. So it was there were brutal living conditions. The pay was lousy. Uh, the soldiers in the post-Civil War Indian Wars Army earned less than the volunteers in the Civil, Civil War. So there, were, there was no incentive whatsoever. And then again, better paying jobs uh, were out there in the West. And you also, um, interestingly, talk about how the Indians, even though uh, they were many from the age of five onwards, um, the, the, the warriors, the braves, were um, trained almost exclusively to, to kill bison and, um, if I got that right, it's not buffalo, is it bison? Bison, thank you. Um, and uh, to kill bison and to, and to fight. And they also, of course, had uh, had advanced weaponry. They did have guns, although obviously not artillery. But nonetheless, they were um, in no way um, held back on that score. They had a, um, a a culture, as you point out, of um, of, uh, of of warlike uh, capacity. Um, why why did they not do better uh, when it came to the um, to the actual battles? Well, the, the, um, any officer worth his salt would acknowledge and did acknowledge that man for man, the Indians were far superior. Uh, some officers called them the best light cavalry in the world. But, and the Indians, long before they began fighting the army, had been fighting one another. Intertribal warfare was a way of life. It's the way, as a young man, you attain status. You, you couldn't even marry in most tribes unless you counted some war honors. But their concept of war was very different. Uh, it was very individualized and uh, very difficult for chiefs to exercise any, any command and control, as we think of it, over their warriors. Uh, time and again, ambushes were spoiled. Uh, major attacks were, were foiled because over-eager young warriors just went out on their own and started the fighting on their own. And also, the Indians really were loath to take heavy casualties, which makes sense. I mean, you know, these were tribes like the, the Comanche, famous Comanche, uh, numbered perhaps 3,500, the Cheyenne perhaps 3,000. They couldn't afford to take heavy losses. Um, and in their minds, if, if enough warriors counted battlefield, uh, battlefield honors, uh, and the losses were low, it was a victory. They, they didn't go into these actions intending to, to, to decimate the army. The, the two times that the army was decimated, the Fetterman, so-called Fetterman massacre and the Little Bighorn, they, they walked into it. And also, they failed to, um, to follow up. I mean, as you've touched on this, they right. failed to follow up victories, didn't they? Mm -hmm. When they had won a victory, they tended to go back to their to their lands, hunt their bison, stay out of the way of the army, and not um, and not follow up any kind of victory. And it's depressingly um, regular, the way in which the same thing happens again and again and again. Depressingly regular, I hasten to add, on, on both sides, on the US side as well as the Indian side, where you get uh, in this book a, um, a, a, an 
Indian incident, then followed up by a uh, by a U.S. massacre of some kind or another, followed up then by an Indian massacre, followed up by a, by an appalling huge massacre, and, and then and then a few months go by or sometimes years, and then the whole thing goes on all over again. But why did the uh, why? And this is over a thirty-five year period. Why did the Indians not either settle upon a, a central strategy to follow up victory or um, surrender? One of the problems with following up victory, you had to remember that the warriors were also the breadwinners of their family. And they would have to, I mean, oftentimes in the middle of a campaign, they would have to break off the fighting to go out and hunt buffalo to stock food for the winter so they and their families could survive the winter. So they were not not able to wage war um, year-round. And uh, again, they, they um, throughout this period, too, tribes were not only like, like the Sioux of Dakota, uh, who were fought, uh, at least an element of the tribe, fought the army uh, famously throughout this era. They were also fighting at the same time. They were fighting to expand their hunting lands. They were fighting other tribes. So while they were fighting the army, they were also fighting their traditional tribal enemies. And so they, it was, a, in every case, at least a two-front conflict. Absolutely. Now, this is central to what is so interesting about your book, it strikes me, and what, certainly what the judges were fascinated by, was that um, in no sense was there a national sense of Indianness. Um, that many of the, um, the, the tribal lands that were being fought over um, had themselves only been in the um, possession of that particular tribe for a generation or so. Exactly. Um, that because of the huge westward push of um, the Indian tribes, um, you had these, uh, these extraordinarily uh, vicious internecine struggles between uh, the Indian tribes, which of course uh, worked perfectly to the advantage of the white man. Mm -hmm. So... Was there any alternative? Was there any way in which um, this could have been avoided? Was there any other, I mean, of course, counterfactual history is something that uh, serious historians try to avoid. But nonetheless, was there a, uh, another outcome that could, in, in which the uh, Indians could have coalesced earlier or more successfully? I don't think so. I, I really don't. Um, again, this, this uh, intertribal culture was just too deeply ingrained in their thinking. I mean, there were tribal alliances like the, the Comanche and the Kiowa or the Lakota and the Cheyenne. But, um, and even if they, say the Plains tribes, which they, my, my book covers the entire West, but the Plains, of course, the Northern and Southern Plains were the seat of the, of the, uh, the, the most frequent conflict and also the largest area. Um, just the, the way of life of the, of the Indians was incompatible with their existence. You had a nation at the end of the Civil War of some 38 million whites, millions of whom were spilling west looking for opportunity. And at most, I mean, nobody knows precisely, but at most 75,000 Indians spread across the plains. And a, a tribe like, like the Cheyenne, 3,000 Cheyenne, they, they uh, needed an area the size of maybe one and a half modern Western states to maintain their hunting way of life. So. I, I don't see where any other outcome uh, could have come about. I think, I think the wars could have ended 
more quickly had the because within every tribe you had both factions that were in favor of accommodating themselves with with whites and following government policy of civilization, so to speak, uh, as opposed to the more traditionalist or the you know, warlike factions. If the government had followed through with its civilizing policy with uh, less corruption and with uh, greater resources and greater honesty and negotiated treaties more honestly from the get-go, um, I think peaceful resolutions could have been reached more quickly, but I think the overall general outcome would have been the, the same, yeah. sure. You, you mentioned uh, Little Bighorn, obviously, as, um, as the biggest single loss of life um, on the uh, US side. Um, but actually, when you also look at many of these battles, and indeed campaigns and wars, some of them um, end in very, very small loss of life. A battle might cost two lives or 60 um, at uh, pretty much the maximum wounded knee, of course, um, a, a bit more, 146 or so uh, Indians. But these are not, compared to the Civil War, or compared, let alone compared to, um, to a great weekend on the Great um, War um, uh, Western Front, these are not enormous numbers. So can we look at, um, at the Indian form of, of fighting a battle? Um, tell us about counting... Is it coups? Counting coups. Coup. Counting coup. I think that's a French word, isn't it, hun? Yeah. Oh, it's French. Uh, counting coup, it was... Uh, they have many coups in France. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Too many, more than you can count. Uh, <laughs> counting coup was uh, the ultimate um, uh, war honor for, for a young warrior. And it would be, you had a, it's called a coup stick, which was specially designed for that. Although if you didn't have one, you could use any piece of wood, it would be fine. And... If uh, Andrew and I were to meet in battle, if he were of another tribe um, and uh, he were armed and I was to ride up to him and take my coup stick and tap him with it and ride off while he was still alive, I mean, that was the, the ultimate coup. And then there was a graduated system. If I were to count coup and Andrew after he was killed, if I was the first two, be the second level. Third level would be if I had been the second person to count coup on him. And you could also count coup on enemy horses, even enemy women and children. So it was kind of a, it was a, a ranking system, and uh, um, warriors aspired to to join these warrior societies, and you did so by essentially uh, recognition of the number of coup you counted. So there was competition at the end of a battle. The warriors would get together and say, and say, "Well, I did I counted this many coups," and they'd have to have other warriors who agreed with them and to have that recorded. So that was um, that was a a big part of their warfare. But was it, a, was it sensible militarily to, to want to tap something um, before you... Not particularly. It was a nice way to get yourself killed. Yes, uh, I was about to say. Yeah, yeah, especially against an army with, with modern, fairly modern rifles. Yeah. Right. No, it didn't. It, did, it was kind of... Um, it was outdated by the time of... <laughs> but yes, exactly, by the mid-19th century. Um, scalping? Scalping, interestingly, was, um, it was practiced by... Uh, by nearly all the tribes, uh, the Nez Perce were, were an exception. Scalping was um, a way of, if you were an Indian warrior, of proving almost beyond a doubt that you had, in fact, killed some, the person that you claimed to have killed. You could, you could demonstrate it. And also a scalp was also considered to, to be, a, I have a, a, 
a supernatural power to it, that you were, you were robbing the soul of the person you killed when you took their scalp. Interesting, the Indians did not put a lot of value on the scalps of white men, the soldiers, and would often toss them aside uh, you know, disparagingly. The, the uh, scalp of a fellow Indian was considered to be far more valuable and greater war honor than that of a soldier because the Indians respected the fighting ability of other Indians much more so than they did of, of soldiers. Fascinating. What about the concept of medicine, the, the, um, the sort of culture of, of, of good and bad medicine in the, in the Indian? Well, medicine, and you hear the term, of course, medicine man, we all know that term. But medicine is, is frequently misunderstood. Medicine to the Indians meant spiritual power. And the Indians believed that, that everything was imbued with medicine even inanimate objects were imbued with this spiritual power. Um, medicine was extremely important in war making fr- from the level of a warrior who had his individual medicine bundle, uh, the contents of which were came as a result of a vision that he would have. A young warrior would go out on a vision quest when he was young and say in, in his, you know, after maybe four or five days of fasting, he would, a hawk would come to him in a vision that would become his medicine animal. He would try to adopt the characteristics of that bird. And then his bundle would represent, represent that all the way up to the leadership of the Indians. And one of the, for me, one of the most fascinating things was discovering just what a scoundrel Geronimo was. An absolute yeah. reprobate. He was a drunk. He was a lot pathological liar. He was entirely self-interested. Sounds kind of familiar, uh, <laughs> but uh, but so he, he had. Me. Hang on. Oh no no no! I was, I was looking. I was looking past you. I was just, just kind of thinking um, okay, uh, about where we stand today. But uh, he um, he had very few friends, uh, but he was considered to have great spiritual power among the Apaches. The Apaches who followed him believed that he was able to uh, stop the sun in the sky, stop morning from coming that he was impervious to bullets. Uh, and so and that they believe that that power could be transmitted to those who followed him. So he owed his following to this belief that he possessed great spiritual medicine. And um, so the, the most successful Indian war leaders were those who their followers believed possessed this, this, this kind of, uh, again, spiritual power but the sort that was beneficial to war making. But very often in this book, um, a leader will, um, because of something that happens on a battlefield, lose his medicine and therefore presumably lose his, his political power in the, in oh, the tribe. Absolutely. And one of the, one of the more poignant uh, cases was a warrior named Roman Nose, Cheyenne warrior, who I came to respect greatly in the book. And uh, he was, I mean, he wouldn't do anything that would violate his personal medicine he had as a medicine man who counseled him on things that he should or shouldn't do. And before one of the major actions against, uh, against the, the army, he did something that violated his medicine. He ate uh, a meal using, if I remember correctly, a fork, a uh, you know, white man's utensil, and that he'd been warned, forewarned by his medicine man, that if you do that, it will break your spiritual power, power and you will be killed. And so he, all the warriors were expecting him to lead the, them into this battle. 
And he was nowhere to be found until a couple hours into the fight. And it was because he realized that his spiritual power had been broken. And he told his closest followers, well, I'll go into the fight, but I am going to die. And he did. And then it was almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. Roman Nose is a fantastic name. There are lots of wonderful names, aren't there, in this book. A stone yeah. Forehead, fabulous name, Rain in the Face. Um, there's one about the, the, the young man who, who doesn't like horses or something. What was that? Right, was uh, a young man afraid of his horse. Afraid of his horse. And then there was the Indian yeah. agent who, who was afraid of Indians, and the, the Indians called him uh, Young Man Afraid of Indians. Right? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> My favorite was actually the, a um, uh, uh, Comanche medicine man who uh, led the Comanches uh, in a, an attack against some buffalo hunters at Adobe Walls. His name, uh, Indian name, was Isatai, which translates to uh, wolf shit. Uh, <laughs> or Wolf Volva, not quite sure which. But uh, so there were some names that were not particularly uh, no, complimentary. No, but, <laughs> but nonetheless, congratulations on being the first person to say the word vulva at the New York oh, Historical Society. <laughs> um, what, um, so we, what about this concept of being bulletproof, owing to the fact that there was pretty good evidence by the mid 1870s that Indians were not bulletproof? Um, how, how what, what kind of, um, of uh, sort of cu- cultural sense did they have that, that, they, that they were? I mean, this, this is, you also, of course, get it at the time of the Boxer Rising in 1900 in, uh, in China, <coughs> this, this idea that people can, be, can become bulletproof through almost willpower. Um, how did that last until the 1870s? I think a lot of it was based on, even though medicine had failed time and again, I think a lot of it was based on wishful thinking, desperation, uh, a, um, you know, uh, antidote to fear mm. uh, going into battle. Um, and I think a lot of, a lot of the warriors just whipped themselves into a frenzy of belief. And I, again, I think it really was, uh, it was, I think, largely based on a growing sense of desperation. That maybe this time. Maybe this is the this is the war leader who really does possess it, and this time it'll work for us. And um, it, it there were enough instances, enough little engagements here and there where the Indians rode off with with minimal or no losses at all. Um, that enough of these that would tend to encourage that, mm. um, like the famous Fetterman, well, the army called it the Fetterman massacre, the Fetterman fight, where uh, some two thousand or so Indian warriors wiped out eighty five. Uh, soldiers uh, in a matter of minutes. Um, so there were, I mean, there were enough of these that, yeah. to to maintain that faith, I guess. Yes, well, one of the um, one of the best chapters in this book um, is that uh, around the telling the story of the Little Big Horn um, defeat for uh, for General Custer. Um, when you actually go to Little Big Horn, even when you when you when you visit the battlefield and see what people can see when they could see it. And it's still quite a complicated uh, battle to understand, including, of course, why on earth General Custer, in an act of extraordinary hubris, um, broke his force up um, in front of Sitting Bull and and Crazy Horse into four different uh, units. Um, And yet, um, Peter explains it brilliantly well. It's the the best... um, it's the best uh, 
account of that battle that I've ever read. Mm. Um, and, um, and, it, and it suddenly does make sense. But again, even there, um, they lost 258 men. It's, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a very small number. So I'd like to go back to this demographics thing. You're very strong on, on the way in which the American West was being inundated throughout this period with uh, gold prospectors and railway companies and raiders and settlers and people who just in sheer terms of <coughs> numbers um, do, um, do uh, overwhelm the, the number of Indians. Um, and, and what I'm interested in is the way in which the Indians, uh, obviously they attempt to deal with this with occasional massive insurrections um, and, then, and then retreat. But um, with regard to, these, uh, to, these, to this sort of Western incursion, did the US government... Uh, you were very harsh on on um, on several administrations, uh, primarily, of course, the Grant administration and the way in which they they ripped up the peace policy and they annexed the Black Hills of Dakota and so on, um, and the Laramie, the collapse of the Laramie Treaty. But um, was there ever? You say that there wasn't ever an actual sort of policy of genocide at all, and of course, you can you can. Um, uh, certainly not see that in the in the papers but was there ever something a little bit more subtle than that going on between Sheridan and Sherman for example in which the Indian Bureau and the Department of the Mississippi were uh, sorry of Missouri were um, were deliberately attempting to create a provocation of the Indians that they then knew would be responded to with something akin to genocide? Um, I, don't, I don't know that, and, uh, that Sheridan and Sherman were ever that anxious to provoke the Indians. Um, Sherman was more anxious than anything. He often actually had to rein Sheridan in. Sheridan would have been more likely than Sherman. Sherman wanted just... He, he recognized that conflict with certain tribes was inevitable, but his greatest interest was getting the Union Pacific Railroad built, Transcontinental Railroad built, and uh, and he also but he also said that the the more bison that um, that were destroyed, the better. Right, Sheridan was a big advocate of, of in fact, you know, wiping out the buffalo, the bison, uh, to to force the Indians onto reservations. Um, but uh, I don't think that they they. Um, Really, so much with the exception of the, the, the of Grant provoking the Great Sioux War, I don't think they they went out and and tried to provoke conflicts. Um, in part because I think they recognized how ill prepared the army was to fight. Um, they um, ended up, you know, suddenly on a policy in the plains of, of attacking the Indians in wintertime in their villages uh, when they were most vulnerable, fighting. You know, the total war in the wintertime akin to you know, total war as they knew it in the Civil War. But no, I, I, I don't really see that. I think, and particularly Sherman, I think he, uh, he was not, not uh, hesitant about, about making war, but I don't think they, they went out looking for it. 
I, I really don't. Obviously, with regard to numbers of demographics, with regard to demographics in terms of numbers, it's next to impossible to work out the numbers because nobody took censuses of, right. of moving um, uh, of moving tribes in the Great Plains and so on. Um, but how did, therefore, the um, the I mean, I, I think when the white man lands in uh, in America, they don't know whether it's between two million and eighteen million um, who are uh, who are there. But we do know that by the eighteen nineties, they're down to a quarter of a million. How did those numbers? If it's not die, they don't die in battle. Um, you mentioned cholera as a really important um, thing. Otherwise, how did those numbers decline so dramatically? In the 1865 to 1890 period, well, most of, most of the decline, the, the, the uh, dramatic decline, occurred before before this period. It, it seems that um, the uh, you know the last great cholera epidemic on the southern plains predates uh, the Civil War, mm-hmm. and it, it's almost as if the Indians who who survived those had developed some immunities. You, you, you saw you saw isolated outbreaks uh, here and there there in the west, but the great decline in population took place prior to the Civil War. Some tribes actually were decimated, were, were continued that trend during the Indian Wars because they were decimated by other tribes. Mm. Like the Pawnee were, were constantly attacked by the Sioux. Um, but I want, just want to go back to your point of provocation uh, and, and whether or not Sheridan, for instance, General Phil Sheridan, one of the most prominent commanders in the West, provoked uh, Indian Wars. I want to amend that a bit. Interesting, he would, he would use um, Indian rays, Indian atrocities uh, as a reason to go to war. You know, that, and, he, and he was he was particularly Sheridan was particularly uh, obsessed with rape of white women, and and uh, he would say, "Well, look, you know, the, the, the Southern Plains tribes have raped uh, eight white women in the, in the course of this summer." Or they've 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 killed fifty settlers, and that would be the argument to go to war against an entire tribe. And I I, I thought about it after I re- wrote the book. I thought you know, numbers of, of of settlers who were killed by the Indians, and and that was their way of trying to scare off settlers, trying to drive them away from tribal lands. You know, I thought about it, you know, really among the settlers, you probably had a greater chance of being killed falling off your horse than you did being killed in an Indian raid. That these this, these were the incidents that would provoke yes. military action. Yeah. So yeah. and and sometimes overreaction. And sometimes, as you say, uh, the marauders, the white marauders, actually were dressed as right. Indians. They dressed themselves as Indians in order to create this uh, provocation. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, I think another word for that is the Boston Tea Party. Yeah, right. uh, you uh, you have quite a long history of uh, <laughs> of uh, dressing up as Indians, causing marauding disasters. Um, uh, when um, um, when that kind of thing happened, do you think a blind eye was turned by the authorities, or do you think that uh, the authorities used used it, or do you think they genuinely fell for it and thought that it was uh, it was Indians who were attacking rather than um, rather than white men dressed as Indians? Uh, during the course of my research, I, f- I found that uh, a lot of the, the district commanders, the lower level commanders who were close on the ground, closer to the Indians, were aware of this and reported it upwards and uh, were pretty perspicacious in that regard. Um, sometimes by the time I got to Phil Sheridan, you know, my, he might not care. I mean, yeah. it was, by that time, it, was, it had been, you know, 
the story had been transmogrified or whatever into a definitive Indian Indian massacre. Um, but uh, those on the ground, and o- overall, and this is the point I, that uh, that came out, and it really surprised me that most of the army commanders, most of the high command generals, really had had an appreciation for what the Indians were going through and tended to sympathize with the Indians and oftentimes went into conflict uh, reluctantly. People like General George Crook, who many consider to be the, the, the most proficient um, of all the generals in the West, uh, spoke vehemently to the press in the 1870s in one interview talking about how our, our government policies, he put it, was an absolute outrage that how the Indians were forced to fight. And, how an out, and he'd been asked by a reporter when a, when a conflict broke out and it was clear that the Indians were in the right Reporter asked him, he said, well, General Crook, isn't it a hard thing to send soldiers out to be killed under such circumstances? And Crook said, no, no, what's much harder is killing Indians who are definitely in the right. And then he went, he went on to this long diatribe against government policy. And that became front page news. And for an army general at that time to speak so vehemently against government policy, that surprised me. And then I found that he was far from unique in that regard. Um, there, was a, there, was some, there was a great appreciation for what for the, the how uh, how uh, difficult and um, a job this was, and uh, how the army would, would rather not have been part of it in many cases. That comes over very strongly in this book. Great, we've now got the um, uh, the, the questions here from the audience. So I'm going to ask a few of these. Um, firstly, would you please identify the greatest myth? about the American Indians and or about the Buffalo Soldiers. Tell us about the Buffalo Soldiers. The Buffalo Soldiers were, uh, that was a name given to four regiments of exclusively black troops in the West, African-American troops. And it was, and and, uh, more specifically to two of the regiments, two cavalry regiments, the 9th and 10th Cavalry. They were known as the Buffalo Soldiers. Uh, The, I don't know if there's a particular myth associated with them, but I, I, speak very highly of them in the book. Mm. The, uh, unlike the perverts and the bummers and the ur- <laughs> urban gutter trash who enlisted in the army uh, overall, the blacks who formed the nucleus of the Buffalo Soldier regiments were mostly illiterate former slaves, and they largely were fighting for a, lo- a more a loftier purpose, to say the least. They were fighting for... <laughs> for their race and to, to uh, show the potential of their race. And the white officers generally who, who commanded them recognized them and admired them for that. And whereas you had a desertion rate, an average desertion rate in white regiments of upwards or sometimes over 80%, you can imagine that, it was a very rare thing for a Buffalo soldier to desert. Very good. Did the American Indians ever have any political advocacy, either from U.S. lawyers or politicians advocating on their behalf, or from within their own community? Both, both. And uh, there was uh, a a large movement in the East, uh, a so-called humanitarian movement, on behalf of the Indians. Many of the leaders had been former abolitionists during the Civil War, and they were looking for a new cause uh, to champion, and the Indians became that cause. Uh, and uh, it was very influential. In fact, President Grant responded to it uh, early on in his peace policy by appointing Quakers and members of other religious orders to run Indian agencies and Indian superintendencies, and this movement only grew as the Indian Wars progressed. 
Uh, it tended to be an east an eastern phenomenon. In the West, you had more of an exterminationist point of view. Um, but the difficulty was that even the most ardent champion of Indian rights believed that uh, there was nothing worth preserving in the Indian way of life or in Indian culture. And so they, while they, the kind of the common term was, well, kill the Indian to save the man. So they were quite willing to accept what we would call today cultural genocide uh, in the interest of preserving and preventing a physical genocide. Um, so there were advocates, there were very, very eloquent advocates among the Indians themselves, like Chief uh, Red Cloud, who would, would make frequent trips east and speak to the president and speak through interpreters to the press and speak uh, to audiences here in New York at the Cooper Union or, or other places and uh, uh, make their point quite poignantly. Um, so there, there was, there were advocates both within the tribes and in the East. And also one of the most famous, unfortunately, I, I didn't get to it as a, as a degree I might have in the book, Gen General Crook in the West allowed one small tribe, the Poncas, to sue him to try to get their land back. And the case was the first instance in which Indians were recognized as having rights under the, under the, constitu under the Constitution. So there were advocates for the Indians. Didn't help poor old Lean Bear, did it? Tell them about Lean Bear. No, Lean Bear. This is uh, how my book opens. There was a chief named Lean Bear. He was a famous Cheyenne peace chief. This was during the Civil War. And he and uh, some other Cheyenne peace chiefs went to Washington. He met with President Lincoln and uh, beseeched President Lincoln to to rein in the, the incipient violence in Colorado Territory uh, so that the, the Cheyenne and Arapaho and the whites could live together in peace. And uh, Lincoln famously said, you know, he, he lectured Lean Bear, he said, you know, the only way I can see that, that, that your people can, can prosper is to become like us, to become farmers like us. And he said, you know, we, uh, he said, I, I can't always control my people and sometimes my children behave badly. That's the title of my prologue. And, Chief Lean Bear and other Indian chiefs go come up to New York. They're um, they're turned into an attraction by P.T. Barnum for a month. They go back west, and Lean Bear is is committed to peace. And unfortunately, he runs up against a bunch of motley Colorado volunteers, who the the governor of the state and the leader of the the, uh, uh, the military district out there, who had political ambitions in Colorado, had sent out to begin exterminating the Cheyenne to drive them out of out of Colorado, and Lean Bear, uh, his, his group of uh, Cheyenne encountered some of these soldiers, and Lean Bear told his warriors, don't worry, just be, be calm. I have my peace medal from President Lincoln. I have my papers. I will make everything right. And Lean Bear rides out to where these soldiers had formed a, a battle line, showing his medal from Lincoln, holding his papers attested to the fact that he was an advocate of peace. And certainly in his mind, he must have thought all would be well. And he got about as close to soldiers as, as you folks are in the, the first or second row. And they, they shot him down with a volley. And they proceeded to shoot him again repeatedly in the ground. And uh, as, I end, as I end that segment of the introduction, I said, well, as Lincoln, Lean Bear found out essentially, as Lincoln said, that sometimes his children behave badly. Which actually brings us on to um, one question, which is why did the United States government go through the motions of making treaties? And in fact, they knew that they could pretty much do whatever they wished with regard to Native Americans. Well, they, they, uh, one, they, they, 
because of the small size of the army. I mean, if, if the army had been uh, approached anything like the size it was in the Civil War, there had been no need for any treaty at all. But when you had an army of only 25,000, nearly half of which were on reconstruction duty in the South, and the rest spread thin throughout the West, it was very hard to achieve anything like numerical superiority over the Indians in a particular region. And uh, it was considered more cost-effective uh, to negotiate a treaty. Some of the treaties negotiated in, in good faith in the sense that uh, those negotiating on the government side really thought that they might be able to enable the Indians to keep such a large amount of land and not, not but in, invariably the pressure of, of white encroachment meant that these treaties had to be renegotiated after they were broken by encroaching settlers. And so the process went on and on. But I, I think a, a fair number were negotiated in, in good faith. Um, maybe good faith, maybe a sense of, well, we'll just look at the moment and then try to, try to uh, put a, a lid on the violence of the moment and not think about the fact that in five years, population pressures might force us to renegotiate and reduce the size of the land the Indians had. And then that recurred, unfortunately. Tell us about the, um, the title of this book. The, the title, a lot of people have asked me about that, and they assume that that's a quote from some Indian. Actually, it's something that I, that I, I thought up, but not in a vacuum. I was looking for a title that would encapsulate, that would be, um, that would not reflect any bias toward one side or the other, but would encapsulate the suffering that occurred. And I, I went through a, a book that contained a lot of songs that were written by warriors during the Indian Wars era and tried to find a little snappy phrase that would encapsulate the suffering without being, without leaning to one side, the Indian side too, too directly. And I would see that the words weep or cry would reoccur. And of course, earth, mother earth was, was, was ever present in their songs. And I just kind of put it together. And I thought, well, you know, the earth is weeping. The earth wept for both sides. The earth wept for the loss of the land by the Indians. And the earth can be said to have wept for the suffering that went on that was endured by both whites and Indians. So that, that's where the, so the title was My Brainchild, but it was inspired by. Which brings us on to the next question. How did you become interested in the Indian Wars? Well, I'd written a number of books in the Civil War and um, I was looking for fresh ground. And I, in the course of writing a biography of one uh, Civil War general, a fellow named John Pope, who after he was defeated, by Robert E. Lee, he was sent out to fight Indians, and last, the last most have heard of him. I discovered his unpublished memoirs in the course of research on a, another book. I found them in an old newspaper, and, and they were fascinating, and I decided to, to get those published. And then I did more reading on Pope, and I discovered that he had a quite distinguished career in the frontier. And more importantly, I discovered that he spent a lot of his time speaking before humanitarian groups in the East on behalf of Indian rights. And... Um, uh, that I didn't expect that, I, that, that the general would have such a sympathetic view of the Indians. And then I discovered that more and more generals fought, felt that way, mm. and the interests developed from there. Uh, and that, plus the fact that I wanted to do something on a more epic scale, and I found that 
at least in my mind, that the Indian Wars was the one era in our history that still had not, I think, been covered in a fair and balanced way and was arguably more steeped in myth than any other era in our history. How much were Indian tribes hindered by the lack of a common language? Um, that's, that's a very, very good question. The Indians had a, an extremely sophisticated sign language, very sophisticated. Um, and I often wonder that myself, and I, and I haven't reached a, a satisfactory conclusion um, myself to that question. Um, you had like the Cheyenne and the Arapaho were, who were very, very close, intermarried, fought and died together over a number of generations, but spoke languages that were mutually in, unintelligible and relied often on sign language. I don't think it was a, a particularly great barrier. I think um, there, were enough, there was enough intermarriage that interpreting wasn't a problem. And again, the sign language was so sophisticated there was an army officer who Phil Sheridan, at the end of the Indian War, suddenly started to regret what had happened. And he, he uh, gave a young officer a three-year uh, leave of absence to write a book on Indian Sign Language. He ended up producing, his name was Philo Clark, a book about this thick of Indian Sign Language. And I remember reading it and trying to do some of the sign language. And they had, they had sign language to um, reflect some of the most incredibly sophisticated and abstract concepts uh, imaginable. So that that was not, I don't think it was, it was a great barrier at all. Was there any a serious domestic opposition to the wars on the part of the US civilian population? And were these wars issues in the presidential elections? Uh, there was um, a great uh, hue and cry frequently east of the Mississippi among the humanitarians and, among the, and, and the press in general. Uh, a number of these conflicts. In fact, the um, oftentimes you would have congressional inquiries and on a number of occasions, Indian participants were actually allowed to come east and testify before Congress so their voices were heard. But um, as for being a, uh, a major uh, factor in presidential elections, um, President not directly, but President Grant feared that the inability to wrest the Black Hills from the Sioux, which were rich in gold at a time when the country was still deep in an economic depression, would be, could become a major election issue in the 1877 election and, and cost the Republicans the White House. And that was part of the reason why he uh, instigated the war in the Sioux in 1876, to prevent that from being a major major issue. What was the role of the Indians in the Civil War in the West? In the Civil War in the West, um, the not, not that great directly. In the Civil War, you had Indian participants who fought on both the side of the North and the South, the, the uh, so-called civilized tribes that had been driven to Oklahoma by Andrew Jackson the Cherokee and the Choctaw split as tribes and fought some for the North, some for the South. And uh, those who fought for the South paid accordingly after the war. But the Indians in the West, um, they knew a war was going on, a great uh, internecine war among the whites, but they didn't really take advantage of it. And uh, they were perplexed by it, but they, um, 
unless they were were attacked by Western volunteers, they largely um, remained aloof from it and or used that time to continue or expand their intertribal conflicts. Sadly. Were many Indians aiming firearms, or were they using bows and arrows, spears, tomahawks, etc.? I know in your book you uh, you point out how a well armed, well aimed um, arrow could, uh, especially at short range, could be just as devastating as a bullet, if not more so. I mean, they they were using a combination. Little Bighorn, for instance, I would you know nobody nobody can say with certainty. I would ask if I were to guess, uh, I would guess that maybe. 25% of the Indians had uh, modern firearms, that is to say, repeating rifles like Winchester repeating rifles, uh, and the rest had bows and arrows. But bows and arrows, again, a, a good, uh, a well-trained Indian warrior could fire off more Indi- more arrows. He could fire off five or six arrows uh, before the first one hit the ground or the first one hit his target. I mean, they could they had a way of, of just rapid fire with their arrows. And uh, to where they were... They were really almost as effective as, as uh, repeating rifles. Um, and uh, so having a bow and arrow was by no means a liability for the Indians, particularly when the army, and I've, I've fired the weapons, I've fired replicas of the weapons that the cavalry used at the Little Bighorn, the single shot uh, uh, trapdoor uh, carbines, and I fired the Winchester repeating rifles the Indians used, um, and the army was completely outgunned. Little Bighorn, and then normally outgunned because the Indians either had repeating rifles or they had bows and arrows that they could arrows that they could f- fire so rapidly. And I mean, one officer remembers saying that he saw an Indian uh, drive uh, an arrow clear through a buffalo. I mean, all the way through a buffalo when the when the strongest caliber army bullet could not, could barely penetrate it. So that was not a liability. Um, speaking of Little Bighorn, could you briefly touch on the Indians' actions against the bodies of soldiers? during the Little Bighorn and after, I suppose. Right. After the Little Bighorn, and this was commonplace among the Plains tribes after any battle, the Indians would mutilate the dead. Uh, the ones who mutilated the dead most horrifically were usually the women, not the warriors. Particularly at Little Bighorn, it was the women who followed in the footstep in, in the wake of the warriors who mutilated the dead so badly. The dead were mutilated for, and this was not widely understood by whites who took this mutilation as an example of Indians being savages, irredeemable savages, but the Indians mutilated the dead for spiritual reasons. They believed that if you, know, you killed an enemy, enemy and you, uh, you know, sliced the sinews, the muscles of the legs, uh, gouged their eyes out uh, and cut their tongue out and uh, did a lot of things that I won't describe on stage here. So you've just said vulva earlier. Okay, well, <laughs> uh, cut certain parts of their body out and stuff them in their mouths. Things like that were done so that the, the in the afterlife, these, these enemies would no longer be a threat to them. The Indian warrior would be hunting happily in the afterlife, whereas enemies would have the use of, they'd be blind, have the use of no muscles, have the use of no reproductive organs, and be, be uh, absolutely helpless. So this was done for religious reasons. And much to my surprise, um, because torture was very common among Indians in the American East and in the, the Eastern woodlands, very few tribes in the West practiced torture, very few. Um, and the mutilation was generally done after a wounded 
man was dispatched. The Plains Warrior would normally, if he found a wounded soldier, say at the Little Bighorn, he would take his war club and end his life, and then the body would be mutilated. Yeah. We've got time for one more question. Um, there, are, there are seven or eight just, uh, just here. Um, so please, uh, ladies and gentlemen, do come up afterwards when you, uh, when you come to buy this uh, fabulous book and, and ask your question of uh, Peter there. But um, finally, could modern America have been created any other way? We have a couple hours. <laughs> we absolutely don't. No, I, I, I'm getting looks. We've got a couple of minutes. Yeah. Um, I, um, I, I honestly don't, don't know how it, by this point, by 1865, I don't see how it could have been. Um, I think there was a time, I'm discovering this in the book I'm working on now on Chief Tecumseh, that really as late as the War of 1812, if the British had prevailed, um, I'm becoming more of a fan of the British as I write this book. Um, if the British had prevailed, Indians may have, may have actually achieved um, a homeland of their own on the border with Canada. But um, by 1865, and uh, given the disparities in population, given the Indians' way of life, and given the kind of people, frankly, who settled many parts of the West, uh, the kind of white people who settled the many parts of the West, I, um, I, I think that um, the outcome could have been much, could have been more humane. I think the Indians could have been better treated in reservations. They could have actually got what was coming to them and not been cheated out of, not cheated out of, of, uh, of their um, annuities and, and, um, and the supposed assistance they were to receive from the government. Um, but as an independent people, they were doomed. Independent people, I, they, they were doomed, I think, unfortunately. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. We want to thank you, our wonderful audience, for being with us tonight. And of course, Peter Cousins and Andrew Roberts, thank you so much for a great conversation tonight. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and it's really a thrill to be able to uh, work with our President Louise Mirror and Pam Schaffler and create these wonderful programs for you. Just want to remind you that copies of Peter Cousins' wonderful award-winning book, The Earth is Weeping, in addition to copies of all the Gilder Lehrman Prize for Military History finalist books, will be available for sale in our museum store on the 77th Street side of the building, and that Peter Cousins will be out on the Central Park West side to speak with you and sign his books. I do hope you'll join us, and thank you all, and thank you, gentlemen, for you. this great program. Thank Thanks. You. Thank you. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Fascinating. Fascinating.